Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 106. Nika, Nika, Nika. Win, win, win. The nearly 70-year-old man on the throne of the empire in 520 was another one of those unlikely emperors. Justin was a common man who became emperor through a combination of hard work and very good luck. He couldn't read and write, but he had many years of life behind him and he knew what had to be done to run a successful empire. The reign of the Emperor Justin was dominated by one man, and it wasn't the Emperor. We need to find out a little more about his favourite nephew. Flavius Petrus Sabatius was also a common man. He was born in 482 in Torazina in Illyricum. His uncle recognised the young man was very promising and invested a lot of time and money in Peter's education and training. He paid for the best tutors in law and philosophy, in literature and theology, and especially in history. He then officially adopted the boy, and arranged for him to be an officer in the army, and start what he hoped would be a great career. Peter Sabatius used his learning and his talents well, and stayed close to his uncle. He was so grateful that Justin had spent all of this time and money on him, that he did something that would show just how much he appreciated it. He added another name on the end of the name he already had, in honour of his uncle. Flavius Petrus Sabatius became Flavius Petrus Sabatius Justinianus and was known from that day forward simply as Justinian. Justinian, like his uncle, came from one of the very few areas of the Eastern Roman Empire that still spoke Latin as a first language. Spoken Latin outside of the church was already dying out in the territories of the former Western Empire and would not last too much longer in the East either. Most of the lands now ruled from Constantinople were Greek-speaking. It is almost certain that Justinian was fluent in Greek as well as Latin, but his reign certainly prolonged the use of the ancient Roman language. Justinian was a man who thought big. He believed in the Roman Empire. He believed in a united Roman Empire. Justinian didn't accept the West was gone forever, and he dreamed of conquering lost territories and restoring the empire to its former glories as the master of the Mediterranean. Justinian was a man of vision. In Justinian's mind, if you were going to fail, you may as well give it a good go and fail spectacularly, and anyway, you might just succeed. Throughout his life, he thought big, and he acted bigger. I like to think that Justinian had an action list when it became clear that Justin was to be emperor, and it probably went something like this. 1. Sort out the problems in the church between the Monophysites and Orthodox Christians. 2. Get married. I'm clearly going to be emperor after Uncle Justin, and I'll need an heir. 3. Make peace with those pesky eastern enemies, the Persians. 4. Reform all Roman laws. The current system is just too complicated. 5. Make sure there's enough money coming in. I'm going to need cash for conquering. 6. Make Constantinople more amazing and more beautiful than any other city. Ever. 7. Reconquer lost territory. 8. Reconquer more lost territory. 9. Be popular with everyone and feel really pleased with myself. If he managed to achieve this action list, even most of it, then he would surely go down as one of the most successful Roman emperors ever. First there was the church. Anastasius was a monophysite, and this meant that he and the Eastern Empire had fallen out with the Pope. The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, was still the most important person in the Christian church, and Justinian knew he wouldn't have the support of the people of the West if Constantinople held different beliefs. 
Also, Theodoric and the Ostrogoths were Arians and were not popular with the Church of Rome. Maybe there was a lever here. Maybe the people of the West would prefer his brand of Christianity to that peddled by the current masters of Italy. When Justin had been on the throne just one month, the Emperor wrote a letter to the Pope. Given that Justin couldn't read or write, we can be pretty sure Justinian both prepared the sentiment of the epistle and actually wrote it. The letter informed the Pope of Justin's accession and sent warm greetings and words of friendship. The Pope wrote back, and soon relations were friendly enough for the Pope to accept an invitation to visit Constantinople. Two days later, the leader of the church in Constantinople, Patriarch John, declared that the churches in Rome and in New Rome were the same, and that the Monophysites were all wrong. Many former bishops, like Timothy the Weasel, and a significant number of other important people, like poor old Anastasius, were declared to be heretics. They didn't mind, though, mostly because they were all dead. So Justinian wasn't even emperor yet, and he'd managed to tick off the first action on his list. It didn't make him popular, though, as there were many Monophysites left in the empire. But success is not all about popularity. Sometimes those with the capacity to think big and act upon those thoughts are feared by the petty-minded. Now, we've heard about the Hippodrome teams, the Greens and the Blues. Justinian was a massive fan of the Blues and knew a lot of them very well. They were his eyes and ears and would spy on the population for him. Justinian always knew what was going on in his city. In 520, one of his spies, a ballet dancer named Macedonia, introduced him to a beautiful actress called Theodora. Justinian fell in love immediately and was determined to marry her, but there were two big problems. His aunt, Justin's wife Euphemia, would not allow it, and it was against the law for a patrician like Justinian to marry an actress. These days, of course, actresses are famous and extremely popular. Many people would be only too happy to marry a Hollywood star, but in those days, actresses were the lowest of the low. These two problems were big, big problems. But Justinian knew what he wanted, and Justinian, being Justinian, got what he wanted. In 524, Euphemia died, and the future emperor asked his uncle to change the law. Justin did just as he was asked, and Justinian and Theodora were married. So, Justinian wasn't even emperor yet, and he'd managed to tick off the second action item on his list as well. It still didn't make him popular, though, as there were many people who were appalled that the future emperor, for that surely was what he was, was marrying an actress. Justin spent the later years of his reign trying to make peace with the Ostrogoths in Italy and with the Persians in the east. In Italy, Theodoric was becoming worried that the new peace between the Pope and the Empire would not be too good for him, and he kept stirring up trouble. In the east, many of the kings of small regions like Armenia had seen the Empire growing stronger and changed from supporting the Persians to supporting the Romans. This and a few other things made the Persians hostile, and they began to move into imperial territory. In 526, the empire raised an army and began to launch raids against the Persian forces in Armenia. Justin was old and ill by this time, and it was Justinian who ordered the attacks. The story of the life and then the reign of Justinian the Great is not the story of one great man. It is the story of two great men and a woman. We've already met the future emperor and his new wife, to lead the attack against Persia, Justinian appointed a man who was a member of his personal bodyguard and, very much like himself, born a peasant. Flavius Belisarius was only about 25 years old. He'd already proved to be a talented soldier 
and Justinian entrusted the important eastern campaign to the young man. During many, many campaigns over the next 40 years, Belisarius would prove himself to be the greatest, cleverest and most talented the general the empire had ever known. Since Augustus became the first emperor, probably only Trajan and Aurelian could have matched him, and both had a much bigger and better army to play with than Belisarius was ever given. Justin became weaker and weaker, and in early 527 appointed his nephew as co-emperor. On the 1st of August, the old emperor died aged 77. Justin was a sensible man, and had been wise enough to let his nephew take a leading role in running the empire throughout his reign. Justinian was now the sole emperor. He soon proved he wasn't like the last two emperors. They had been stingy and accumulated, so the treasury was replete. Justinian was prepared to spend plenty of cash. He threw massive celebrations and games to celebrate his accession. This made him a tiny bit more popular. But popularity maybe wasn't his main goal. Power, glory and reasserting the primacy of the Romans were more important to him than what people thought. He was an absolute stickler for the formality of his office and how he was to be treated. People allowed into his presence had to prostrate themselves on the floor in front of him and then, if they were so permitted, kiss the hem of his long purple robe. The trappings of absolute monarchy, granted by God, were already well in place. By 531, the Persians had been subdued and Justinian agreed a peace with them. This left him and his armies free to look west. So Justinian was the emperor now, and he'd managed to tick off the third item on his list. Even this didn't increase his popularity though, as the peace treaty cost the empire £11,000 of gold. Now that Justinian was fully in charge, he could set about ticking off the next two items. In 529, the emperor met a lawyer called Tribonian. This man was the cleverest and most brilliant lawyer of the time, and had tremendous energy. He could work harder than most people thought possible. Justinian gave Tribonian a huge project. He wanted the entire Roman law written down in one place. Unfortunately, there were lots of laws that other laws said were not good laws. Good law needs good laws, and so the bad laws had to go. As, of course, did the confusing ones. In less than 14 months, Tribonian had written down and organised the entire law of the empire and cut it down so that it fit into 12 books. These books were called the Codex Justinianus, and were to be obeyed by every court in the land. The simplification of the laws was immediately felt. Anything not contained within the new code was automatically repealed. The Codex remained in use throughout the whole of the existence of the Byzantine Empire, although it was changed and added to by later emperors. It was soon to be used in many other parts of Europe, and is still the basis for the legal systems of a number of European countries today. In the next few years, Tribonian published the Digest, which listed all of the old laws, the Novellae, which included Justinian's own laws, and the Institutes, which was like a schoolbook for lawyers, teaching them how to apply the law and do their jobs properly. This latest successful action also didn't increase his popularity, though. It should have been great. Unfortunately, Tribonian was a brilliant lawyer and a charming and funny man who was great to have at parties, but, and as we've said it before, it was a big but, he was also completely corrupt, and a pagan to boot. According to the historian Procopius, he would pass laws and cancel laws every day for anyone so long as they paid him vast wads of cash. Tribonian was so corrupt, he became the second most hated man in the empire. The second most hated man? So, 
Somebody was hated more. How could this possibly be? Well, it was true. Somebody else was even more hated. In 531, Justinian appointed a man known only as John of Cappadocia as Praetorian Prefect. Now John was a superb administrator and completely honest and trustworthy. The emperor needed cash and John was the man to get it. He introduced 26 new taxes which were targeted at the very rich patricians as well as the common people. Very soon the money was flowing in and Justinian could finally dream of spending it on conquest. This treasury accumulation was very unpopular and John of Cappadocia may have been a great organiser and fantastic tax collector but he was highly unpleasant and very cruel. His methods of making sure people paid up were perfect for making him a well-loved man. Well, no, actually they weren't. He happily imprisoned, flogged and tortured people who were slow to cough up the cash and seemed to enjoy doing it. It was said he could squeeze money out of a stone. He was also, apparently, ugly, had repulsive table manners and was not the kind of chap you would invite round for lunch. He soon became the most hated man in the empire. By the time 531 turned into 532, Justinian had achieved more in his five years in the purple than many emperors had done in much, much longer reigns. But, as we've said, none of it brought him the love of his people. He may have been doing the right things, but the right thing is not always the popular thing. As we've noted, the emperor had always been a fan of the blues and had many friends in the blues. As his reign went on, though, he began to need them and rely upon them less. He was always viewed suspiciously by the Greens, but pretty soon he was nearly as unpopular with the Blues. The taxes had hit the wealthy landowners hard, and there were many wealthy landowners who were fanatical Blues. Justinian's reforms actually hit both parties pretty hard. On the 10th of January, there was trouble in the Hippodrome. The Blues and Greens always sat in different areas of the vast stadium, just like Liverpool and Manchester United fans at Wembley for a cup final the two factions started to encroach into each other's areas and fierce fighting broke out. Justinian sent in the troops to restore order and seven of the ringleaders were arrested and sentenced to death. Five of these leaders were executed by hanging but the killing of the other two was botched by the hangman and they escaped. They were pursued but they escaped again. The two happened to be one blue and one green. For almost the first time the blues and greens were united. Three days later there were more games. The emperor took his usual place in the imperial box, but things were not normal. The atmosphere was menacing and scary. The noise was deafening. The noise was very deafening. The volume of enthusiasm in the Hippodrome was always ear-splitting, but this noise was even more deafening than usual, and Justinian realised he was not hearing the usual sounds. Instead of the greens and blues shouting for their own teams, they were all shouting at him. The crowds chanted a single word over and over and over again. Nika, Nika, Nika. Louder it became and louder still. Nika, Nika, Nika. Soon the chanting was overwhelming. Nika, Nika, Nika. Nika means win and the crowd clearly wanted to win. But what they wanted to win was not a chariot race but a battle with the emperor. The games were abandoned and the mob of blues and greens went on a mad rampage throughout Constantinople. Many buildings were burned to the ground, including the Hagia Sophia itself. The rioters forced Justinian to sack both Tribonian and John of Cappadocia, but this was not enough for them and soon they were determined to overthrow him. 
they chose to raise to the purple one of the nephews of Anastasius. But he heard what was happening and fled, so they burnt his house down. Instead, they found another of the nephews of the old emperor, a man called Hypatius. Hypatius was terrified and did not want to be a usurper. He tried to slip away unnoticed, but the rioters found him hiding under his bed and crowned him emperor with a hastily borrowed necklace. Justinian was very surprised, very frightened and absolutely livid. The imperial palace had its own dock where ships could be launched and his advisers urged him to flee Constantinople. The rioters were at the gates of the palace and seemed determined to kill the emperor. Justinian was not sure what to do, but seemed that he was erring on the side of caution and would depart. It was here, though, that Theodora showed herself to be as strong as her husband. She stood up in front of the emperor and his advisers and gave one of the most famous speeches in imperial history. I do not care, she said, whether it's right for a woman to give brave advice to frightened men. But in moments of extreme danger, I must do what is right. Every man who is born will one day die, and an emperor should never run away. If you, my lord, wish to save your skin, then you'll have no difficulty in doing so. We are rich, there is the sea, there are our ships. But think, when you are safe, you will regret that you chose to run rather than to die. For myself, I think the ancient saying is correct. The imperial purple is the best burial shroud. Suddenly Justinian regained his bravery. His wife was right. There was no way he was going to run away. He began to think. Was there anything he could do? He thought, and he thought, and he realised that there was. Belisarius was back in Constantinople, and Belisarius was loyal to his emperor. As Justinian came to his senses, he created a plan that involved Belisarius, another loyal general called Mundus, and Narses, a popular old man who was commander of the imperial bodyguard. Soon the plan was put into action. Belisarius and Mundus took some troops and went towards the Hippodrome, taking two different and long routes so they wouldn't be noticed. The mob of rioters was inside the arena and didn't see the approaching troops. Suddenly a signal was given and the troops burst in shouting and screaming and charged the rioters. The Hippodrome became a sea of blood and chaos as the soldiers killed blues and greens at will. Narses and the Imperial Guards blocked the exits so that nobody could leave. The mob threw themselves at Belisarius's men, but they only threw themselves against swords, and an angry mob is no match for sword-wielding legionaries. Pretty soon 30,000 people were dead, and the riot was over. Hypatius was brought before the Emperor, who felt sorry for him and was going to let him go, but Theodora reminded him that this man had been raised to the purple and could not be allowed to live. Justinian had him executed, along with one of his brothers. The people were shocked. The emperor was still not exactly popular with them, after having 30,000 of them slaughtered, but they most certainly had a new respect for him. They knew now that they could not push him around. The Nika riots, as they became known, were never repeated, and never again did anyone seriously try to overthrow Justinian. Next time, we'll see what happens when Justinian puts his really big plans into action. So, until then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.